Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Sahar Fetrat, who is a young Afghan living and studying in London. She introduces herself as a feminist who's navigating her way between activism and academia. This journey has seen her produce short films as well as becoming a prominent social commentator. Sahar was born in Afghanistan, but had to flee with her family when she was only one year old because of the war that had engulfed her country. Her family returned to Kabul when she was 10, and she stayed there until graduating from university. She then moved to Budapest to pursue her first master's in critical gender studies at the Central European University before moving on to her second master's in war studies at King's College, London, which is where she's currently a student. During her relatively short but impactful career, Sahar has directed two short films, one called This is Kabul and the other Do Not Trust My Silence, with the latter one winning a Best Film Prize in an Italian short film festival. Both films seek to challenge the position Afghan women and girls hold in that society. More recently, Sahar has published articles that seek to highlight the plight of women and girls in her homeland, which is an issue particularly relevant now that the Taliban has returned to power. Sahar, thank you for joining me on The Voices of War. Hi, Maz. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for having, giving this platform for me to talk about uh, my experiences. Absolutely. And uh, and what a turbulent life you have uh, lived. And perhaps that might be a good place for us to start. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing uh, and how you uh, came to live in London, which is where you are now? <laughs> it's a, um, a long journey. Uh, yeah. Um, um, I have a very interesting journey because I, uh, in my life, I've lived in three different countries, like most of uh, my life in Iran and Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. Um, I was in Iran until I was five, and then we went to Pakistan and stayed there until I was 10. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Kabul, when I came to Kabul with my family, that was the first time I was actually getting introduced to to, to the society, to home, to, to the country that my parents would always talk about. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was... Uh, I mean, there's so much to say about Kabul because um, I saw, as I was growing up, I saw Kabul growing as well. Uh, lots of developments, lots of activism, lots of um, activities going on. What year was it that you, so so you said you went to Afghanistan when from, from about the age 10. What year was that? I think it was around 2006. Okay, so so well well after the uh, the... Uh, coalition forces beat the Taliban in 2001. So it was under the American or coalition force governance, uh, Afghanistan. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And it was um, uh, relatively calm. Like I wouldn't say peaceful, but it was calm because um, there was still um, security situation was still okay. It was still good. You could move around the city Mm. and you wouldn't be so worried about bombs and like uh, explosions and stuff. So yeah, it was a, it was a re- relatively uh, different time. Yeah, and I'll definitely will definitely uh, come on to that. But I'd be really keen to just explore a little bit this these early years because I suspect they would have shaped 
uh, a lot of who you are as well. So you were in Iran till about five. So I suspect you probably won't remember too much of those years. But, you know, the later years when you were then in, in Pakistan, is that right? Yes. So how is that? So, so you, I guess you were forced to move because you, you, you fled from Afghanistan first time into Iran and then why did you leave from Iran to Pakistan? Did you, were you also, did you also have to flee or, or what were the circumstances around that? Um, I mean, uh, Iran, yes, definitely, because uh, it was a difficult time and my parents were hoping for a, a different or a better future for us. So, yes, they fled to um, to Iran. Um, I mean, I, there's not so much that I remember from Iran, but I definitely remember this uh, title, the name uh, of us as Afghans. And even mm. though um, our lives, uh, because of the kind of um, financial situation of my parents and they were working, it was not, um, uh, we were not treated as badly as other Afghans. But I remember like the word Afghan used, used as, as a slur. And I remember that from that time, I was kind of, experiencing or, or at least seeing uh, inequality and injustice and bad treatment. So that's, of course, something that I kind of grew up with uh, or grew up uh, thinking to fight with. Mm. And um, when we went to Pakistan, it was a total different story because we wanted to go somewhere else. We wanted to go somewhere where we can have access to education, easier access to education, because in, in Iran it was not possible hmm. uh, for Afghan students to get education. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we we left uh, Iran to Pakistan for the hope to go somewhere else, which hmm. didn't happen. But, uh, yeah, in Pakistan, it was um, also a very different kind of life, life that we experienced because then my father could not speak Pashto or Urdu in the, when we were living in Peshawar and then... Um, it was like our lives totally changed because in Iran it's still po- possible for my father, to who was a car mechanic, to work. Mm. And uh, in, in Pakistan, it was a different kind of uh, life experience, especially um, uh, affected by poverty uh, in that sense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, those early years definitely shaped the way I see life the way I uh, seek to to question uh, things and the way I see my life journey yeah um, and and truth be told I can actually empathize with that quite a lot having and you and I spoke about this previously offline but I I was Mm -hmm. a a refugee myself from Bosnia in Germany uh, for three and a half years Uh, so I can in in a very small way empathize with that the the stigma Mm -hmm. that comes with being a foreigner, not speaking the language, and then of course, the desire to fit in, to belong, uh, and to realize that you know, try hard as you might, uh, it's actually very difficult uh, unless you unless you really spend a lot of time and and, and get the chance to embed yourself in that society. Uh, and I suspect you would have experienced something similar, uh, particularly with that with the, with the tarnished brush of uh, of being an Afghan. Is that is that what what I'm hearing you say? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry that you also had the same experience, but uh, of course, as a as a child, as a as a someone who is just uh, um, trying to uh, learn about life and about um, about things that matter, mm. I think to to start with to begin with inequality and to begin to begin with injustice and to begin those, that journey with uh, a feeling of identity uh, issue, having an identity problem is not easy it's very difficult and of course you always want to fit in but you also um i mean along the way um you kind of accept your um identity as well which happened mm. to me at, at first i was like when people would call me an afghan because the way it was used always pained me so much and i remember in first grade when somebody called me afghan and i cried for long and of course, later I tried to see things from. I mean, a few years after that, I tried to see Afghanistan through the eyes of my parents and their experiences, and try to understand that no, it is not. It is the people who are wrong. It's not my identity or my um, where I'm coming from. Uh, the problem. So that's um, how things kind of started changing. But yeah, it's always. It was always a. Uh, a hassle <laughs> something to kind of constantly reminder constant issue yeah of course and then what was it like then you know as a as a 10 year old still a you know very much a child again i can just think of myself to me the world was still rather exciting as much as everything that was happening around me was was falling apart but then you went back to afghanistan and i guess you could perhaps get back in touch with your uh, Afghan identity. How was that journey? Going back to Afghanistan, I think it's one of the best things that happened to uh, my family and to me especially. Um, the years that we went, at first it was difficult because, uh, of course, we were uh, in Iran and then Pakistan. Uh, I mean, these are our neighboring countries, but still we are different. And the um, the kind of access you have to things, the kind of uh, day-to-day facilities that you have might have in Iran and Pakistan is very different than it is in Afghanistan, at, at least at that time. Mm. And especially like, um, I remember in the area that we, we lived in, in Kabul, uh, those at that year, there were not so many girls going out. There were not so many women participating in the kind of uh, outdoor activities, and uh, it was like um, my uncles and us and my family that there were girls who were actually going and trying outside and exploring things and uh, working and uh, you know it's just who were not only staying at home. Mm. So it was a very different uh, uh, society back then. So it was, a, I guess, a return to, I guess, the, the Afghanistan of the 60s and 70s in many ways. But did your parents recognize themselves in that, uh, in that kind of reemergence? Um, to be honest, no. It was a very difficult uh, def- uh, for my parents. They, uh, I mean, my mother comes from uh, Parwan province. Mm-hmm. She grew up in a... In a, a small village that she absolutely loved so much and um for her she she never got the the uh, chance to get educated because in that area they even if even though my grandfather wanted to send them to school but nobody was sending their school uh, their girls to school mm-hmm. and the school mm-hmm. was way far and it was only boys who would get education uh so my mother has not experienced um a, 
I think her experience of Afghanistan is limited to her village and her uh, life in that village, which which has a lot of uh, happy moments and happy stories, but also it is uh, brutally unfair because uh, her brothers could get education, but the girls could not. Mm. And I mean that that was a defining feature of of uh, of where my uh, mother ended up in a sense, and where my uncles um, ended up. But my father had a different life. He was still, he's also from Parwan, but he uh, grew up in Kabul. And uh, of course, he's coming from a poor family, but he he had to work since a young age because uh, his father was not able to work at that time when he was a child. So he would provide for the family like his brothers, but he was deprived of education. And that is uh, something that always remained in my parents' minds and in my parents' memories that um, although they loved education, they never got it. Mm. And uh, But my father had also, like, he experienced Kabul differently. I mean, he it was the time that when he was a young, uh, a teenager or a young man, he was just going to the cinemas and watching Bollywood movies. And mm. uh, it was it was a time where Kabul was uh, not, I mean, people in Kabul were not very conservative. So he experienced mm. that. That's kind of um, that image of Kabul as well. Mm. Uh, but when we came back, it, the society was kind of, it was just after the ta- Taliban and after the, uh, it was just a relatively peaceful or um, calm uh, Afghanistan, but it was not what my father had experienced uh, when he was young. And uh, so and the society was still very conservative and uh, especially with women. Uh, you, you you mean now in 2006 when, when you came back? Yes. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It, well, you wouldn't see, um, although there were opportunities for women, all people were talking about uh, democracy, and but to actually see uh, women's participation and uh, seeing women outside in the streets, in the activities, I don't know, in the, like uh, ministries and uh, professional mm. areas, you wouldn't see so many women, or if you you would, it was uh, a very small number, a limited number of women that you could be seen outside. And is this what uh, then motivated, well, initially your your filmmaking uh, that you saw this uh, injustice that you saw uh, around you? Because you were quite young, right? How, how old were you when you when you published your first or, or released your first film? Well, the first one uh, was uh, a very interesting project. I was 14 years old and uh, that was uh, me and my sister and a friend of me. And we had two Norwegian producers hmm. who uh, had this program called um, Global Video Letters, something like that. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't quite, I remember it quite well. Mm-hmm. So it was people from uh, teenagers from um, uh, war-torn countries or conflicted countries mm-hmm. would make a short video of themselves introducing their society, where they live, what do they enjoy from, from their city and, you know, their activities and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the time where I also got introduced to this program and that's how uh, this is cobble came about we mm. um, contrary to what they were thinking of uh, of us as young girls in cobble we showed that we they were surprised to see a very different image of Afghanistan because we would go to concerts we would uh, arrange a lot of uh, volunteer activism a lot of volunteer work and we would we would basically take part in everything 
cultural and you know anything related to environment and activism in Afghanistan at that time. And we were quite active in everything mm, and mm. very excited. What do you mean contrary to what they expected, uh, if that's the words you used, I think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's still uh, in 2021, the world's image of understanding of life in Afghanistan and the lives of Afghan women is very limited. So back in, I would say, 2010 and 11, it, it was uh, way more limited, I think. They were just um, the producers, at least as far as I know, were uh, doing this project in some other countries as well, and they wanted to do it in Afghanistan. And I think the kind of image that we showed of uh, our lives was surprising for them because they were not th- thinking that uh, Afghan girls would have so much joy living in the society that they live, fighting with the kind of things that they fight against, but also enjoying themselves, um, mm. uh, being like any other uh, teenager in other countries. Yeah. So I think that in that sense, it was very interesting uh, interesting and surprising for them mm. uh, to see, uh, to witness what we were doing. But I'm not saying that this is like all Afghanistan. Of course, we were um, a smaller group back then. Mm. But uh, but what I, I think what uh, this is cobble kind of uh, explored was how um, limited the world's understanding or our understanding of each other and each other's life is. And we think that when people live in, in, a, in a conflicted uh, zone or, uh, or a war zone, it's just that they're always in the misery and in that cycle while actually people are very resilient mm. and people are uh, finding many different ways of of surviving that situation and making Mm. uh, the most out of it Mm. yeah absolutely and i think that's a that's a really interesting point and i think it's a it's it's about how narratives of a conflicted area or, or 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 a place where there's war ongoing how the narratives are shaped by the media about and oftentimes making removing the agency and victimizing those who are in that conflict zone and i can just think about the war in Bosnia, how it was narrated in the West. Uh, it was, you know, the poor Muslims uh, that were being exterminated, which, of course, there's, you know, truth to that. There's no, no question of that. But, of course, there were also other ethnic groups who were suffering. Uh, and, you know, there was resilience. Uh, there were still concerts. Uh, there was an, a huge underground scene of people living their lives. And uh, some of them, you know, even, you know, friends that I know refer to their years in war-torn Sarajevo as some of their best years of their life. So I, I guess that's uh, that makes absolute sense. And also, the the and maybe I, th- I think I've read this in one of your essays about this idea of, uh, you know, victims uh, or, or certainly Afghan women and girls being victims and needing to be rescued. Uh, I remember you reading something that you, uh, uh, you wrote about this. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, exactly. I was, I mean, from these narratives that are emerged, especially narratives that are narrated by media, and I would say, especially Western media, it's usually about this or that. It's like black or white. And growing up, what I had problem with was the way Afghan women were always portrayed in Western media, either as victims who have no agency, who have no no power, no no influence, or it was those who were saved and now they were change makers. Mm. And what I always wanted to say was that 
on a daily basis as Afghan women, especially when I was living in Afghanistan, I would see it this way, that on a daily basis, we get to be victimized, we get to survive, we get to rescue others, we get to rescue ourselves. This mm. is a very complicated notion, like this kind of life that you can't say, oh, now that they are not victims, they have agency. So now everything is okay. We left them by their own and now that we have rescued them. And I think this notion that we saved Afghan women, especially at this time, in 2021, especially at this time where the U.S. left Afghanistan the way it did, I think the West should not ever talk about rescuing Afghan women. Mm. And um, so that time, going back to what I wanted to say, is that um, I was uh, bothered with that that uh, narrative and this binary narrative. And um, yeah, so that kind of influenced me to to think more about my activism, especially my feminist activism and mm. documentary making and trying to um, uh, kind of emerge everything together, bring them together so that I can um, use this uh, all of these tools and knowledge to tell a different a story that is different than what mm. the Western media is actually portraying. Mm. And one thing that I, I still think about a lot is that how much energy and effort we put. Uh, I mean, if I talk only about Afghans, uh, throughout these years and also uh, especially in these difficult times is um, how much energy we put to educate our Western audience about our lives, about our pains, about our kind of uh, narratives, about our um, sufferings. Mm. And it's also very unfortunate because the, the louder we get, I think the world is getting deaf, more deaf. More and, deaf, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the perhaps the most painful realization. Um, and, and it's one that, that I think, you know, I'm confronted with as well. Uh, as much as I don't have um, links to Afghanistan per se, but um, I've deployed over there as a member of the army and with what I hope are the right intentions. But, you know, seeing what's happening now is, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it, the mind just boggles and yeah, how, how could this have happened? But, but I think I, I definitely want to get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a really powerful point that we can't avoid. And that is the kind of circumstances. But just before we get to that, I just want to pick up on something. Uh, you describe yourself as a feminist and I just want to hone in on that a little bit, mainly because I, I consider myself a feminist as well. Right, so mm-hmm. you and I spoke about this offline. Uh, I have a daughter. I want her to grow up to have the same opportunities uh, as I've had, uh, to have to enjoy a life of equality uh, in its broadest terms uh, possible. But of course, in today's society, uh, our narratives are dominated by the extremes. Right, moderate voices, probably like yours and mine, are very rarely heard. It is those on the far extremes of both sides of the political spectrum that dominate. Uh, mm-hmm. The kind of social media and, and of course, uh, mainstream media uh, as well, because of course that sells, right? Um, but I just want to, and, and the reason I want to hone in on this is because at the moment, certainly in some circles, the word feminism uh, is almost considered a dirty word, uh, which I think is, 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 is not right. And I also mm-hmm. want to give you the chance just to explain what you mean by feminism. Can you define feminism for me? Yeah, I, I let's start from um, uh, from this. I agree with you. It's it's uh, this world in this world that we live in. It's very difficult to not fall into this narrative or that. It's always like it's almost um, 
like a game like a game that you need to survive and not yeah. fall uh, and and it's just that uh, these uh, wires are on both sides so navigating a way in between is always it, it requires uh, self-reflection it requires energy it requires privilege it requires knowledge it requires a lot of other things mm. uh, so yeah for me also it's very important not to fall into um, any of uh, the extremes mm. uh, but I think uh, just to uh, talk about uh, feminism. My understanding of feminism uh, comes from the way in, in early um, uh, years of my life, I had uh, heard stories of my grandmother who at the time where Mujahideen were coming to their areas and they were, of course, in every uh, conflict and in every war, uh, there are women who are being uh, uh, sexually abused or women who are being sexually tortured or women who are abducted and and that kind of uh, um, you know effect of war on women mm. my grandmother at that time was um, she was very brave she uh, I mean this is uh, her uh, taking a gun to to um, is not something that I would be proud of in a normal situation but mm. the way she took that to uh, to um, kind of make it safe for my mother, for my uh, aunts and all the women around her in, in her village is an act of bravery, is an act of uh, courage. And I absolutely uh, admire that. Sorry, just to clarify, do you mean to say that she took up arms to, to, to physically fight? Is that what you mean? Or? Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, okay. She never had to, but the fact that she did it, it scared people mm. off. So um, um, this is the story that I, I heard about my grandmother and I mm. saw her. I was lucky to see her when I was uh, young and um, and uh, my aunt and the way they, my mother and my aunt and all the women in my family, with their limited access to everything, they fought against patriarchy. Mm. For me, it was always very in inspiring and the way they would see themselves equal even though I'm not saying that it was as equal uh, as we define equality today or as I define equality mm. myself, but still they were, uh, they knew that they, they deserve better and they fought for it and they uh, fought for a better future for, for us, for the daughters, for the girls. Mm. And also um, uh, in their own ways, they challenged what they were brought up with so that they make a difference in, in our lives. Mm. Uh, so for me it was always inspiring and from my own family I had learned uh, that as a girl in this world you have to uh, fight for things otherwise nobody is going to give you that space nobody's going to get that, that platform you have to negotiate you have to fight you have to go for it and you have to challenge yourself and others and it's never going to be easy so um, in early years of my life, that's what I learned about, like, uh, I would always say women's rights. I want, uh, what about women's participation, even in the courses uh, and classes, English classes or in the school, everywhere, it was my concern to, for, to kind of push for equality. Mm. And uh, the way I encounter, uh, I encountered the feminism, I mean, the word uh, for, or the concept for the first time, was very interesting because um, I was always challenging my uh, my teacher who didn't want the girls to stand up in front of cl classroom and uh, to uh, present in front of everyone. And it, it would always encourage uh, uh, guys to do that. Mm. And I didn't like that. 
So one day um, I was very stubborn and he asked me to, to present my presentation from my, from my uh, seat. And I said, no, I'm going to come in front of the class. And this is very interesting because somebody else, has, another feminist I know has this story. He called me uh, an ugly or an angry feminist. Mm. <laughs> and I had heard the word feminist before from my sister, but it was not something that I would uh, like understand uh, much about. Mm. And I came home and I took the dictionary and I'm looking like, you know, that time we had this big uh, dictionary. This, uh, it's a book. So I was looking for a word feminist and like feminism. And when I understood the meaning, I'm like, wow, this is not bad. I mean, I'm okay with it. <laughs> yes, I am this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am this without like having a concept for it or name yeah. for it. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's how uh, I got introduced to the term itself. But so for me, what my mother did in her life, and I, uh, it's this time is limited and I, I can't say everything that she did, but the way she lived her life, the way my grandmother all of them now that I reflect, and when I was reflecting years back as well, it was, that was feminism itself. It can't mm. be anything else, can't be mm. named anything else. Uh, but yes, now I have more privilege. I studied gender studies. I have been trained in a, a feminist uh, discipline. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I uh, am more concerned uh, about women and uh, uh, and not only women as like or not only women's issue but I'm concerned about everything that is both political and personal I'm in, uh, uh, I'm concerned about politics and um, I don't know masculinities I'm and everything that is interconnected in this world mm -hmm. and of course there's a there, there is a multitude of issues of course that that are interconnected here as well um, and I find it it, it does makes sense to me given the strong powerful role models you've had in your life you know why you've set on this journey why you why why you've been set forth on this journey i guess also from the roots that you've uh, that you've had and of course then it also makes sense why you you know quote unquote what well, to use your words you said you were stubborn why you stubbornly persisted uh, with your movie making and i think your second movie do not trust my silence Maybe I'll ask you first what that movie is about because uh, I then want to come into on a, on, on a question uh, about that. But uh, what's the "Do Not Trust My Silence" about? Um, uh, just before that, I think I'm, I want to say something more about feminism because um, of uh, this definition. And I, I remember you said the way it's understood in in, uh, in some parts of the world. And I would say uh, it will always always be. Um, uh, understood in a wrong way if we don't try to understand it more if we have this guard and we say no so feminism is this and I'm not going to learn about it it's always going to be um, an almost unachievable kind of uh, uh, goal but if uh, but I think if we just uh, open our hearts and minds and try to um, see the world from a different perspective and understand the uh, I'm not saying that feminism as a movement and also as an um, academic discipline doesn't have uh, issues, doesn't have problems, but mm. the beauty of, of uh, feminism, the way I have understood this, is that there is always room for self-reflection and there is always room for criticizing yourself and everything that you do. And I think that for me is a, is a, is a huge uh, thing. And uh, coming back to um, uh, your question about uh, not, do not trust my silence, uh, the name is inspired by um, an Iranian um, uh, song. Uh, 
which I mean, they talk about the singer is Golshifte uh, Farahani, and uh, that song is about their. Um, it's very political in a sense that talk about how Iranians have been um, suppressed throughout years and how, like this silence is. Uh, at any moment, this uh, this nation could uh, could explode, and mm. at any moment things could change. And this uh, silence mm. is not because people want to be silenced; it's because they are silenced. And uh, well, it's the what we what we understand as the uh, perhaps silent majority, right? Uh, in, in yeah. just in a different context. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, for me, it was the, this uh, title, this uh, this uh, song has been very inspiring. But I was also, um, since a young age, I have uh, coming from coming to Afghanistan, like I said, it was not easy those years. Uh, I encountered harassment and sexual harassment and physical har- street harassment a lot when I was young. And I'm sure a lot of other girls did as well. And they do at this moment. Mm. And uh, there was um, almost, it was like a, a pain in my chest that everyone every time I wanted to talk about street harassment um, I would just get into tears and not be able to talk about it while I wanted to raise awareness I wanted to um, to talk about it so the girls don't think that they are the problem I but but every time I talk about uh, talking about one of the experiences I had I would um, bring me into tears and then I couldn't talk more about it mm. and then I decided what's the another way of dealing with the, this pain and that year I uh, after uh, this is Kabul I got into another uh, training where I had more freedom to make uh, documentaries by my own and think about the story and uh, produce it and uh, direct it and do everything mm. and I decided to uh, to talk about the street harassment because that was honestly um, paining me so much Mm. and um, I was very young I was 17 and um, so I made this documentary I talked about how um, it was it was like a very it's if even if you watch it it's just a a letter that I'm reading or there's not so much that you can show from what we experienced. What I what I show in that documentary, the way people talk to us, the way, is a very small portion of what we would experience uh, in uh, Kabul, at least uh, those mm. years. On a day to day basis, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I to to be honest, I have been traveling around the world, in, in, at least in a. In uh, many countries, and I know I have been harassed in uh, in a lot of places. But um, definitely, what what I experienced in Kabul was uh, it was another level of of uh, you know well, brutality. abuse, brutality, and abuse. abuse yeah. It was yeah. brutal. I mean, and I'll put a link to that uh, film because I, I I watched it before we before this interview, and and again, as somebody who's got a daughter, I. I I get such a visceral response from the the language. So, so just for the audience, what what you and I think there was uh, a friend of yours must have been in the in the film as well, who was uh, at least in the recording, helping record. Uh, you would walk along the street and basically just through tra- through traffic, uh, and you would record secretly, you know what 
the drivers of the vehicles are yelling out to you. Uh, and these are some of the most vile, um, of course, sexually fueled uh, uh, in- insults uh, that, you know, for anybody who doubts what you mean by feminism, uh, they only need to, they only need to watch that film and think about their own daughters, their own mothers, their own sisters going through something similar. It is an absolutely harrowing experience. And, uh, I take my hat off to you for being courageous because that's not, that, that was a very brave thing to, thing to do, particularly at such a young age, uh, to step outside and to, into that world, uh, disguising mm-hmm. a camera to capture the lived experience of a- Afghan girls in Kabul, right, which, as you said yourself, from 2006 was rather peaceful. Um, and, you know, it was years that, uh, as you again said yourself, you used to go to concerts and there was, there was, a, there was an air of, of maybe liberation or of change or uh, whatever it was. But underneath all of this, there's another layer. And this is what, uh, what I particularly like when you say everything was black and white. The black and white narratives of, you know, poor Afghan women uh, who are victims, uh, but without any nuance, uh, who then need to be rescued without actually giving any color uh, to what actually happens on the ground. And I think your movie does that exceptionally well because it really brings to life the actual what what you and you know your peers and women and girls in general uh, would go through every single day on the streets of Kabul, and it is absolutely. Uh, horrible. It was, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. I mean, congratulations on the movie. As as painful as the subject is, I think it's a really uh, impactful uh, uh, depiction uh, of 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 perhaps even the trauma uh, that you had gone through. Thank you, Mas. Um, um, I also when you were saying like this, uh, people who doubt, you know, the way we talk about feminism, you need to watch those that documentary. I would also encourage them to when they watch it. To think about mm, themselves and think think about their brothers and sons and yeah, as they think about their sisters and daughters, because look, um, like at the end of the day, uh, patriarchy or um, or misogyny or all of these impacts uh, horribly horribly impacts all of us, mm. and it makes a society that divided and that uh, vicious. Mm. And um, yeah, so I wanted to invite people to to think about what who what kind of men uh, do we send to 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 the society? What kind of men do we uh, um, you know? <laughs> no, sorry, yeah, no, 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 no. I understand what you're saying. It's uh, what kind of men are we are we producing and actually sending forth into the world? So exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's what I meant. No, no. I, 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 and, and again, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and and just to you know, thinking about you know more broadly, but you know, habits in a society is ultimately what form this big grand narrative of culture. I mean, that's that's what that's what culture is. Is ultimately habits of a of a particular social group uh, that embody. You know its values, its uh, you know its language and 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 behaviors and so on, um, but it's all changeable. All of it is changeable, and it is through Definitely. it is through moving our understanding of somebody else's lived experience that we can actually start slowly realizing. Hold on a minute, maybe she's not uh, merely a radical feminist. You know that just wants to you know uh, you know burn every man, etc., etc., etc. Which is the 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 counter narrative that is thrown out so much and so frequently and so often without people stopping and actually thinking. Hold on a minute, what what 
what is the actual point here? What are we talking about here? This is, you're not asking for anything apart from <laughs> a little bit of dignity. Uh, and again, I just invite people to just watch that film and, and to just be absolutely blown away by some of the vile stuff that is coming out of people's mouths uh, when a young 17-year-old girl walks past their car uh, while they're stuck in traffic. It is just, uh, uh, it's amazing. Uh, from here, maybe I, could, I just want to zero in on the camera because I think what you recognize perhaps at a, at a young age is quite powerful. Uh, and that is the, the, well, the power of the camera and the power of the, of the lens uh, on people. What was it about it that caught your attention? Uh, did you recognize that or was this a kind of an experiment or did you recognize and realize the power this can actually have? Uh, well, um, uh, I was always amazed by storytelling. The way um, my, my mother, uh, she was never, um, she, she could never write or read, but the way she told us the stories of, uh, of her life, and the way she narrated always, always amazed me so much. And so that's something that I was always inspired by. And uh, before before camera, I was also writing and just uh, diaries. I still have like, uh, whatever I go in this world, whatever I travel for like a few years, I, I take all my uh, notebooks and diaries and mm. everything that I've written. So that was something that, uh, um, that the passion was there. But uh, exploring uh, or, or holding a camera for the first time, it was a different kind of um, experience because it was storytelling plus feeling powerful about it. And I remember, and that's one of one of my uh, one of the people who was in this documentary. She she describes it the best way because that's what we all felt. But she would say. The first moment I, I hold my camera and uh, when there were guys, we were all holding cameras and there were guys who come to say something to us or harass us. And then we were like, oh, um, you know, we would just hold our cameras and tell them, you will, your family will watch you on Tolo TV or this TV. Mm. And uh, and then they would either apologize or run away or things like that, or they would ask us to delete the videos. Mm. Um yeah, so th th it was it was a very different experience, and uh, you would feel like you have as you hold the camera to talk about the reality that you the kind of inequality you're facing, the reality of of your society that you're facing. You also have uh, you also have power to to change it, and very immediately, even if it's not uh, a long term change, but it actually at that moment you can kind of um, protect yourself. Mm. And uh, later I realized, no, it's not only for Afghanistan. Like there's so much that we can uh, do uh, holding a camera. There's so much we can do to kind of influence or uh, the thinking of people in not only in Afghanistan, but also outside Afghanistan. Mm. And I think this was a very powerful way of, of, of getting introduced to storytelling through, through documentaries or through videos. Mm. Yeah, and and what what stories you actually do tell, that they're very powerful and they inspire an emotional response, which is what you want when you're trying to change the world. You want people to recognize, you know, and and be emotionally connected to what you're experiencing. And I think that's what uh, you've been able to tap into uh, through your through your camera. Um, so again, I really mm -hmm. congratulate you on that. Thank you. 
So when you then went back, so, so while you were in, in, in Kabul, of course, the trajectory didn't necessarily uh, uh, end in a very, well, certainly not now, not in a happy ending uh, for Afghanistan, but also for you personally. I think you've, uh, in, in the later years, while you stayed in Kabul, you've then experienced some uh, further trauma. And of course, on, at, at a personal level, uh, with your uh, parents passing away, uh, both in, in rather quick succession, uh, but also you were very close to, a, to an attack uh, by a suspected Taliban at the time uh, at your university. Could we maybe talk about uh, those cases a little bit, just to add, um, again, to invite more colour into the power behind your story? Um, yes, uh, those years, uh, like um, after, like my, in my teenage years, Kabul was still, um, like I said, still safe, but then getting unsafe in other provinces. Afghanistan was getting unsafe in other provinces. And to me, it felt like, uh, from let, let's say from late um, 2012 let's say 2013 to the, if i bring it to the, then 17 and 18 mm-hmm. it was like um, um the danger um the insecurity was growing closer and closer to you like if it was foreign provinces and then it would come to closer provinces and then in outer areas of Kabul and then in the in the center of Kabul and then the, and then very personal to the to the university that i was studying in so this is how I experienced the intensity of this uh, conflict uh, or, or um, uh, yeah, the insecurity growing in this mm. sense. In 2016, there was an attack in my university. The Taliban, they came to the university at around 7 p.m. And they fought until I think it was 4 a.m. where the students who survived were rescued, the last ones who stayed inside the building and were hiding. So um, I went with one of my friends to a restaurant. We were leaving, we left the university and we're looking for the car. And it was like five minutes after after we left that we heard um, a very loud uh, sound. And we thought in our head, because we just left the university, we thought, no, it can't be our university. Maybe it's the parliament. Maybe it's another place. And then by the by the time we arrived to uh, the university, I received a call from my sister and then she received a call from her brother and they were just asking where we, we were. The two of them were studying at the American University and the two of us were also studying at the American University. Oh, sorry. The fr- sorry, the, f- the friend you were with received a call. You received a call from your sister and she received a call from her brother. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, obviously my sister ran away. She survived, although um, yeah, Taliban were opening fire on them. But uh, her brother, which was my very close friend, my dear friend, his name is Jamshid, he didn't survive. And we, after that call, we couldn't get hold of him at all. And of course, that night and that, those days is, is still, uh, yeah, thinking about it just... Uh, takes me back to that moment and uh, that's such a traumatic experience and um, very unfortunate yeah that that year was I, I don't know I don't even believe how I survived that year but and then of course there was always the guilt survivor guilt like I thought I survived but my best friend didn't and there's so many people who didn't and things like that mm-hmm. but in um, in January that year 
my mother my mother passed from something very small and uh, and I'm sure if it was not a war torn country she could have been rescued and she could have been, she could have survived and she was like 58 years old she was not even mm-hmm. I mean she wasn't very old or she didn't have a big sickness or something like that so this is one effect of war that people usually don't talk about is how everything, every infrastructure, every system in, in it, that war-torn area stops functioning as well. So mm. if you don't lose your loved ones directly from an attack or uh, a shooting or a killing, then there are indirect ways of a few losing them. Mm. And this is what people don't talk about or don't think about. And then that year, later that year, uh, in August 20th, my father passed from something very, very small. And like, it just, it of course pains me that my parents are not alive. And what pains me the most is it's the way they, um, they died in very small medical issue very small uh, mm. something as small as a leg fracture mm, yeah something that uh, in in yeah any not even peaceful but just a merely stable place uh, uh, with sufficient resources would have been treated uh, with relative ease exactly exactly and um, so uh, for me, when I think about war is, uh, I try to think about every way it, it affects people's lives and people's well-being and people's, uh, you know, it's in a psychological way, uh, there's, there, most of us are traumatized in a, in, a, in a way that it might take years and years until we feel like we, we are healed. Mm-hmm. But also in, a, in an indirect effect of war, we're also very much scarred. Uh, mm. How did you? How do you feel about this imposed experience on you? Because I mean, you 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 never asked for this. War was never something that you, you know, wished for or hoped for. But it's something that occurred to you, and tragic circumstances that followed as a result of that war. Um, you know, not least as a refugee, but that of course, um, with the loss of your parents, loss of your best friend, uh, the fear and the anxiety. How do you? How did you deal with all of this? Uh, and again, being relatively young and now being, you know, arguably quite alone in the world. Well, um, I mean, there. It's it's legitimate to think about it uh, and to have so many different feelings about it, and that of one of them is rage and anger, and the other, of course, you feel. At times lonely, you feel miserable, you feel uh, helpless, and all these emotions are, um, are legitimate, all of them. And I allow myself to go through these emotions. And uh, so, one 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 feeling or one emotion that I have most of the time is is anger and rage and and, and power dynamic in the world and how in an equal system, equal inequal world that we live in, and that. So, like, what can you do with that emotion? I mean, I can be angry all day and night, and okay, I understand it. And uh, but sometimes, when I have uh, the time and space and privilege, I try to use that anger and force it and make sense of it in a way that is is more productive. It's either writing uh, an article, or it's either writing my dissertation, or either 
getting into, uh, I mean, studying or uh, studying in a sense, I mean, like applying to study more or get more mm. educated or, um, or in the past, it was about making documentaries and raising awareness. But mm. all of these, all of these need, for all of these, you need to have some space to, to first make sense of things for yourself and then try to, um, you know, so all I'm trying to say is that it's not like a lot of people um, talk about um, um, change making and things like that as if something you wake up in the morning and then you go into the world and you change things. Uh, but I absolutely disagree with that. And I think that's a very neoliberal understanding of change and and, and impact. And, and so uh, in a sense for me, it's always, if you have all this fuel, you first need to to absorb some of it and absorb, absorb uh, and understand what's happening in your life. But for all of that, all of that, you need uh, privilege and time and space. I say that because when I was in Kabul, so many things happened in my life. Um, at the same time, I was living through this, but I also was fighting uh, me, me, no, me as me as Sahar, but also as a lot of other women who shared the same, uh, you know, kind of life. That we were also fighting with patriarchy. Like when my parents were not alive, it was hard to um, to rent a house. I mean, you don't have a husband, you don't have a brother, you don't have a uh, you know, mm. there's no male uh, relative in your family, someone you could be connected uh, to. And then how do you, like, uh, something as easy as renting a house is impossible for you. So if we understand uh, conflict and war and inequality, we should think about it in, in many layers. It's not if you're impacted by war in one way, it doesn't mean that other things are okay. Some of us are fighting several fights at the same time and it's very tiring and also it doesn't give you a chance to to understand what happened in your life mm. when i came to um budapest for for my masters i mean the program was intense it was it was huge for me to change from business to to gender studies but at the same time with all of that i had some time to understand what happened in my life in the past four years, because in Kabul it was always survival, survival. It's, if you survive from this, you try to survive from some other things, and it's always everything happens in a very fast pace, um, and some of them happen all together. So uh, in Budapest, uh, I was overwhelmed with a lot of emotions, with everything that I hadn't tackled, with everything that I had and have uh, I didn't have time to reflect on. Mm. Um, so that's why for me it's always important to to um, to mention um, the privilege of having time and space uh, to to understand your pain and to understand what you have gone through. I couldn't agree more with that. And and while you were talking, then I, I, you've taken me through a journey of my own life, and and I can totally I, I agree with that. I mean, I sometimes feel like I've lived three lives, or that's how I describe them because they were so vastly different. Um, but mm-hmm. it took it took years for me to understand, and you know, you mentioned identity at the start um, about what my identity is, and to not be either ashamed of the identity uh, that I had, uh, or to not be ashamed of the identity that I was trying to become or, or, or consume. Uh, and I remember being a you know 
a raging young male, uh, angry on many levels uh, about what I had experienced and what I had gone through and what my family had gone through um, and not being able to firstly communicate that to anyone for the first reason being that I didn't speak the languages uh, of where I was firstly Germany then English. Uh, but when I, for example, my first first school day in Australia, um, I had a, a, a physical fight uh, because all I could understand is, I didn't understand English obviously, but I, all I could understand was a couple of derogatory terms uh, that were put, being pointed at me uh, by one of the uh, the school bullies. Mm. But to me, that was... You know, it was it was it was like red to a bull, uh, and of course I, you know, I was the one that instigated it. But that was this rage that I had within me, mainly because I I could I did not have the ability to communicate. I just remember crying, but and 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 jumped on this guy and whatever you know fighting, uh, but tears were jumping out of my eyes from pure rage and anger for not being able to communicate, to just just tell him to stop, to not. It was something very simple that I would have hoped uh, to have been able to say, but I didn't have the means to say it. Uh, and it's, you know, people don't see this when they see a refugee, when they see somebody who's from a war-torn country. They don't necessarily see what actually, ex what that person has experienced, what they've gone through, what they've, what okay. life has been like for them, particularly when they, and this is where I'll openly say it, when they have had the great fortune and luck to have been born in a stable society uh, where they haven't lost family members, where they've never heard a gunshot fired, uh, where they've never feared for their life, etc., etc. Uh, it's, really, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing for you know, people to actually understand and connect with when they haven't uh, experienced it and, 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 um, and, and felt that. So thank you for sharing that because I, I, I really appreciate it because you did really take me on a, on a journey of my own life. Uh, and I really do agree that, you know, the, how important it is to reflect because it, it took me, and again, I speak my own case, it took me years to reflect, to start finding some meaning and sense in uh, in my experiences yeah. to then hopefully turn those into something uh, that has some positive energy. And th this project is very much part of that same motivation, just like, you know, I suspect for you, your movies are um, and, and all your writing. Yes, exactly, Buzz. I was, I was, when you were talking about, um, this rage and not being able to communicate it, I, I absolutely understand that. I, I think that rage, that anger, um, because of the, the like the brutal journey that most of us experience, is 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 very much justified. It's just that we are not taught how to how to deal with those emotions, mm. of course, and we are mm. also the the whole society or the other people who don't go through this are not also taught. Or they're too privileged to think about how they can empathize, how they can understand, and how they can actually um, be more more welcoming to to mm. to kind of and not, not to bully or not to make fun of the other people's uh, pain yeah. or not mock not mock them for for what they have yeah. gone through. Yeah, how to be yeah, part of a solution it, rather than the problem. Yeah, <laughs> which exactly. is ultimately what it is. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, oh, that's wonderful. I, I really do thank you for that. Those are those are. Um, really, really powerful. I think a summary of of, of the lives that many uh, of us have lived, and I say us, although I haven't experienced anything like you have. But uh, there are certainly certain uh, emotions that I'm uh, I'm sure I've experienced um, like you have. And, and here I, I use I always whenever I 
uh, talk about empathy, and I, and I teach empathy in various courses. You know, I usually take Brené Brown's uh, mm-hmm. uh, quote that it's you know it's about connecting to the emotion underpinning an experience and not connecting to the experience itself, uh, because none of us can experience the same things, but we've all felt the same emotions. We've all felt fear, joy, sadness, anger, um, and I think that's what. Uh, what your summary has just done. Uh, so, so I thank you for that. Um, maybe we can pivot now to the, the inevitable fact uh, that we need to talk about the current situation. But how do you, this is a hard question to even ask, but how do you feel about the current situation? I mean, I'll start from today. Um, uh, I, opened my Instagram today and I opened my uh, WhatsApp messages and I received so many messages from some some of the girls that I know in Kabul and the videos that they have been sharing and uh, I have a second cousin who is a cousin of my cousin and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we know each other from uh, Kabul but of course I was friends with her um, older sister, which is about my age, but uh, she's she's uh, much she's younger than me, and she's 21 years old now. So she grew up in this time that the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, she's been um, joining the the protests in Kabul, and uh, very brave. And she sent me so many videos, and she told me, "Sahar, I scared uh, Taliban off," and I was like. Uh, it was so inspiring and it was so, um, I mean, that is very courageous of her because I can assure you that this is the first time she has ever gone to a protest. So if this is her experience, they're, they're shooting and they're, uh, the Taliban are uh, beating women on the streets and all of these. And you must be very courageous to do that if that is your first experience of any kind of protest. Of course. Um, so um, I do have, so many different emotions in a way in many ways i am i'm proud of what i see i am very feeling very helpless because i am not there and i can't do anything uh, uh, and um, i also that's on a personal level but in a bigger political level i am very angry on on uh, and the world and especially the us and the western allies and uh, those who, who, in many ways, used uh, Afghan women's name to justify their, you know, their own fight, their own, um, yeah. their own careers, um, their own PhDs, and, and yeah, exactly, and, you know. exactly. They were. Uh, I know people who made a career out of Afghan women's name. I know people who journalists who actually uh, are award or winning awards left and right because of what they did in Afghanistan and. And I'm not saying I'm not I'm not taking away from them, but I'm just saying that now that it's time for them to use their their voice and platform for Afghan Afghanistan and Afghan stories, they don't. And some of them especially direct the, the attention, divert the attention from Afghan women in Afghanistan to themselves and the way they, uh, you know, for self promotion, mm. for self branding. But these are individuals. But if I talk about uh, or journalists, but if I talk about um, uh, about, for example, the U.S., it is very, very, very uh, heartbreaking the way um, the way they dealt with with this uh, issue. I mean, it's not. I'm not saying that people wanted them forever, but this irresponsible and being so. Uh, not accountable for what has happened. 
um, I don't know, people uh, need to need to question their own conscience and uh, their own humanity. And the next time they say they ever say Afghan woman, they need to know that it's Afghan woman right now who is saving their conscience and saving their humanity. Because if you can, if you can watch the videos, if you can see how Afghan women are beating, like actually being beaten every day, and Afghan journalists, male and female, and all people who who, who work for freedom. And you think that is normal, and you think it's boring to talk about Afghanistan, then there's something absolutely wrong with with the way you understand the world, with the way like your humanity and mm. Mm. yeah, I don't know what to say actually. Like all these uh, very painful, but what we see is uh, that. It's so normalized for the world to see Afghan suffering. It's such a normal thing to 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 see them being beaten in 21st century in 20, 2021. Afghan women are being beaten on the streets, and our journalists are being beaten in the streets. And openly, all this brutality happens. And people are just having their own like end of summer parties and like all the social media you see and. I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but it's just that yeah. when you see that the that this the pain from one side of the world is is not paid attention to at all, and it's so normal and it's so okay. No, actually, I don't know what I said. No, no, that's <laughs> Sorry, fine. No, no, absolutely, that's fine. I mean, uh, the way I'm seeing it is really what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that very same child that I described that is mm -hmm. screaming, raging, angry, yeah, but doesn't have the tools and means to communicate. And even though in this instance we might have the tools to communicate, like you said at the start, the more Afghan women, girls, people, men, boys scream, the more deaf the world becomes. And I think that's the that's that's the question of conscience that you bring up. That's the question of morality, uh, of you know, the the way this story has unfolded. Uh, because now we're normalizing it. We're normalizing that Taliban is back in power because <laughs> it was inevitable. Uh, and of course we're normalizing the narrative that um, the Afghan army collapsed and, you know, didn't want to fight that war, uh, didn't want to stand up for its, uh, for its own women, et cetera, et cetera, which is the counter-narrative that we're now starting to hear. Uh, and again, that narrative is becoming normalized, but of course, at the cost of those who are the most underprivileged, the most victimized uh, in any of those societies. Uh, and again, it's just, a, 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 you know, your, your, your film about, the life on the streets of Kabul in 2000 and, you know, when was the, that film? I think it was uh, 2013. Yeah, so so in the quote-unquote relative stable piece, um, we'll, we'll show people what life was like then. Uh, I can only imagine what life is about to become or it has already become uh, for women and girls in Afghanistan. Exactly. And right, right now, like... Um, 
Afghan women are protesting in every province and um, I mean as much as they can and of course Kabul because of many reasons is showing more more uh, courage or it can show more courage but um, what what I see a lot of people don't see is is uh, as Afghan women are protesting the Taliban they're also protesting patriarchy they're also protesting a lot of other problems right now, limitations right now. Because when they go, I mean, I've been in protests in Kabul and I know that if when you go to the protest, the same person who's protesting with you in, in a one way or the other harasses you as well. You know, how, how I want you people to understand that these things happen together at, at the same time. And so I, if, 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 for example, let's say men are um, only oppressed by the Taliban and their regime women are facing double or triple or multiple oppression. Mm. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I'm, all I can say is, I mean, I'm more power to these women. And I'm, I'm just amazed and I'm so inspired. And and I hope, I, ho- I, I wish it was not, this is not how it ended up. Um, but. Yeah. What support would you like to see from the regional and the global community? Well, I mean, I have no uh, no hope for the global community in a sense that the way they, and I know hope in the, after these 20 years, there is no hope left. And I think we are just by our own on this. But from, from people, I have seen a lot of kind, uh, gesture, kind gestures. I have seen a lot of, I mean, in these evacuations, there were people who didn't sleep for days and nights and, and I'm sure people like yourself, and there's so many uh, people that I personally know who put their minds and hearts and, and everything they had to um, to help people get out. And that's one way of doing it. That's one we don't, um, I, ha- I don't have belief in any faith in institu- institutions. I have faith in human beings and and but but we are very scattered and we're in different parts of the world and it's hard to to make it a collective power sometimes mm. uh, but yeah i mean that was one way of doing it like the other way uh, i mean the, the least people can do is to um, to raise awareness mm. to share what's happening in afghanistan to talk about it to donate to i don't know to um, contact their mps and representatives in the in the states that they can, um, you know, these these small things that we can do can be very impactful. And to empathize and to share to to help people who actually have evacuated everything, uh, to hear their stories, to understand their pain. There's so much we can do, Mas. There's so much that human beings can do to help each other. If they care yeah and that's i think what part of this discussion is to inspire that emotion again uh, to to drive people to do whatever they can um, maybe i can ask you if there are any charities or any particular projects that are going on at the moment uh, that people can support uh, even right now because the crisis is happening right now yeah, uh, there's um, um, one of the charity, uh, one of the fundraisings that I absolutely support, and I know this initiators of this fundraising 
or people who actually cared so much about Afghanistan. It's called um, a program called Sahar Speaks, where that's where I learned about writing and journalism. And it's not my program. It just happens to be Sahar Speaks. But um, uh, so the journalists who are uh, all female, they're out of Afghanistan. They've been evacuated, most of them. And now as they're starting to uh, a new career, a new life in, in, the, in the host countries, um, the people who start this fundraising, they try to get them uh, laptops and cameras and tools to continue journalism. And um, yeah, I would really appreciate if people could contribute to that because that is uh, where I started journalism and writing. And I think that was very liberating. And I think now it will do the same for, for the alumni who are not living in Afghanistan anymore, but want to talk about um, their stories and their concerns and their uh, kind of things that they're facing right now. Yeah, their lives. Yeah, so I would be very grateful if people could uh, could contribute to that. Excellent. And I'll certainly put the uh, those links in the show notes uh, as well. I'm conscious of the time and that we've, we've gone slightly over our agreed uh, time, but if you could speak to those currently in Afghanistan, those perpetrators of violence, Taliban, if you could speak to them, what would you say to them? Mm-hmm. I want them to know that they're so cruel and they're, they know that they're so powerless because all they can do is to create fear and to inflict fear and to uh, rule by by uh, by making fear and that shows how how weak they are because they cannot communicate because they cannot uh, win people's minds and hearts and they know that they have no capacity no capability of of doing anything beyond creating fear and what else? I mean, you just need to for for for. I mean, war. I don't want to see it from this 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 perspective because war itself is a is a business, and I don't want to make it only about these uh, Taliban fighter fighters on the ground because Taliban is a bigger project and uh, we should not forget who initiated them. We should not forget who is funding them. We should not forget everything around it. Um, so what I just said before is about, is how I would talk to a, a Talib soldier. Mm. But beyond that, I think uh, they need to know that we will not forget and we will not forgive. And we know who is uh, connected to this misery and who, who created this mess. It's not that we are dumb just because we don't have the opportunity or the resources to talk about it very openly, but we know what's happening. Well, I have to, I have to follow up with that question. Who, who created the mess? Well, I mean, let's not um, forget that um, the U.S. was very much involved in, in initiating Taliban, funding them. The Pakistan was, as it still is, very much relevant. And uh, uh, think about all superpowers. 
think about Russia, Iran, and uh, there are many more countries like that. So, I mean, it would be very, uh, I would be minimizing the entire Taliban project if I would just make it about Taliban soldiers on the ground, those who kill, kill people or those who uh, beat people on the street. It's much more than them. It has always been bigger than them. And of, uh, uh, of course, it's uh, war itself is, is a is a huge business. So there are people who actively benefit from 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 the mess that it has been created in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well said, and I think the 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 great game continues. And unfortunately, it is, uh, it is never those who uh, make the big moves on that great chessboard that pay the price. It's uh, always the people on the ground uh, who have never <laughs> who've never elected and never chosen that that particular path who pay the uh, pay the pay the price for it. Sahar, uh, it has been an emotional discussion. Uh, it's been a deep and insightful discussion. I know we finished on a slightly sad note, but I do want to say that uh, I absolutely respect what you've done so far, what you're doing right now, and I think you deserve to have a voice, you deserve to be heard, uh, and your voice deserves to represent those loved ones of yours who are even today struggling uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, So I congratulate you on everything you've done uh, and wish you all the best. And uh, I will certainly keep an eye out uh, and look forward to helping any way I can. Thank you so much, Mars. Uh, it, it uh, indeed was a very emotional uh, conversation, and I thank you for for providing the platform and uh, for the very heartfelt uh, questions and follow-up questions and uh, conversation. Um, one last thing I want to say before we go is that I want people to, anyone who's uh, listening to this, to understand that we are doing everything to make you hear us. All you have to do is to start hearing. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Sahar. Good day, Mel. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.